Let's uh, just bow our hearts again, if you can, just before we come before God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we recognize that Jesus said that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And Father, we see in our own lives that your word is a sword. And it divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. That which is of you and that which is of the world. And Lord, this morning as we study your word, as we turn to these pages, then Father, help us to understand the difference. Help us to understand, Lord, the blessings for those that walk by faith, that walk in the spirit. Lord, the peace that comes from those whose hearts and minds are stayed on you. But Lord, also to recognize the danger that lies before us from the flesh from the heart that would deceive us and pull us away from the things of you so lord speak to us this morning as we study your word lord just give us ears to hear and lord soften our hearts they wouldn't be hard against you but lord willing to become obedient to you we ask in jesus name amen so we carry on in our journey through the book of kings i want to take us straight away to deuteronomy now, Jared has already mentioned this portion this morning, um, and it's so apt that we, we look at this again in context of the, the portion we'll be studying this morning. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 17, and picking up verse 14. Now, these are the instructions that God gave to Moses for the future king of the nation. Now, some think that the kingdom was something that the people brought about because of course we see with Saul that the people were the ones that really instigated that they wanted a king they wanted to be like the nations around them and so they end up with Saul on the throne but that was never God's intention but God did intend for there to be a kingdom it was one of the two prerequisites of the Messiah coming one being the law had to be given that would then confine all under sin, would show that we're all sinners and we need a saviour. So that was one prerequisite. And the other was the kingdom to be established. So God wanted a king, but God's king was David. And of course, eventually David then does become king. And then we move on, as we have done now, looking at Solomon, uh, David's son. But these instructions then that God gives to Moses, it says, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt uh, in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. In other words, you don't choose a king yourself, but God's going to choose your king. One from among thy brethren shall thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not, now notice these instructions that are given for the king himself, but he shall not multiply horses to himself. And what is it we find that Solomon's been doing? We saw last week in our study, the whole, Solomon multiplied horses, nor caused the people to return to Egypt. Where did Solomon get his horses from? Egypt, very much. Where did he find his first wife from? Egypt. And God says to the end, the reason for this as that he, uh, sorry, they should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall henceforth not return no more to that way, neither shall he multiply wives to himself. And we're told here that his heart turned not away. You see, God gave this instruction because he knew that by doing these things, it would pull the king's heart away from him. Neither shall he multiply greatly to himself silver and gold. For the same reason. Because it would just cause so many issues, so many problems. 
Proverbs 14.12 tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You know, there are ways that seem right to us. It seems like a good idea, a good thing to do, but they're not necessarily God's ways. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Proverbs 4.23, our verse of the week a few weeks ago now, but keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You know, there's so many warnings in Scripture about our heart. And basically God was saying, don't put yourself in harm's way. This is exactly what he's saying to the future kings of the land. You know, there's some very simple instructions that we're given for life. We're told that God's word, we know, of course, is, gives us these simple instructions. And we're told to love the Lord your God. We sang that in our song this morning. Both in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we're told the same thing. But Mark twelve thirty, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Then we're to love our neighbour as well. We have to get the, the context. These are all the instructions we're given. But then we're told that we must seek first the kingdom of God. So before we've even started thinking about our lives, our needs, what we want, our desires, our dreams, our plans. Love God. Get this priority right. God is more important than your own plans. And we should seek the kingdom of God. Seek what God is doing rather than our own dreams and plans. And then we're to walk by faith. That means we don't make the choices that just seem natural. A number of scriptures allude to that. Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6 tell us, of course, that that which we understand is not necessarily godly. We're told to lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. Psalm 37 verses 4 and 5 tell us that we should delight ourselves in the Lord. And he'll give us the desires. We're told in 1 John 2 verse 15, we're not to love the world. Now this is again part of Solomon's problem. In fact, every single one of these instructions Solomon fails on. Don't love the world, all the things in the world. Romans 12 Verse 2 reminds us again that we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Naturally, we're going to crave after the worldly things. Colossians 3 verse 2 says we should set our minds on the things above. We're going to turn to Hebrews in a short while. I'll come back to that then. But we're also told in Micah 6 verse 8, then we're given these instructions that we should do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. And as Jared Letter of the Holy Spirit this morning to use that verse, I'm sure, has highlighted already that we should obey. It's far more important than what we do. You see, we're to love God before and above everything. That's with our whole being. Again, we're to love our neighbour, and then we must seek the things of God. And this is to give us an objective, if you like, targets and a purpose. You know, we've been left with instructions. Proverbs 29 verse 18 tells us that where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. God has given us the things that we should be doing. He's told us how we should live our lives and why. You know, again, from Proverbs chapter uh, 3, verse 5 and 6, you know, we're not to rely on our feelings and emotions. I remember hearing a, a sermon some years ago just talking about the way that so often we are driven by our emotions, by our feelings. It's not spiritual. It's worldly. It's fleshly. And some of those things can sometimes be employed in, in the right way. Of course, when we're praising God, it's sometimes a very emotional experience. It's very good sometimes. But sometimes we equate emotions with facts. And it's not always the same thing. 
Sometimes what we feel isn't necessarily the way things really are. But we're told that we're to guard our heart diligently, as we've seen. We're to walk by faith. And faith, we're told, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, faith is often acting against our natural inclinations. It's not relying on what we think we know. It's choosing to delight ourselves in the Lord. Even when this isn't our first action or reaction. And, of course, it's knowing that when we do that, God will replace the twisted, sinful desires that naturally reside in our sinful nature. God will replace those with godly desires. And, of course... To cement this way of living, we're also reminded to not love the world or the things in the world. You know, because they're not going to profit us in the final analysis. You know, we are told, of course, speaking of Moses, um, that you know, there is pleasure in sin for a season. Of course, that's why Satan tempts us in the ways he does, because they are things that will trip us up. They will seem appealing. But Paul urges us because of that, as we said a moment ago, to think differently. That's really what Romans 12 verse 2 tells us. To think differently. Colossians 3 again. To set our mind on things above. The house we're told uh, in Matthew 12 uh, verse 44 and 45. The house could be swept clean, but unless we fill it with godly things, fellowship, reading the word, prayer, communion, and of course they're the majors of our faith that we find in Acts 2.42, we're going to end up in a worse state than when we started. You know, and we come to that very dangerous and frightening place where we lose the gift of repentance. And that's the verse Hebrews 6 6. You know, i.e., that sorrowful, remorseful attitude of heart and mind that is genuinely repentant before God following transgression. You know, we see with David where his heart was because after he transgressed with Bathsheba, after he'd had Uriah killed, and effectively, in all of breaking pretty much every one of the Ten Commandments, dishonouring his parents by doing what he did, committing murder, coveting, everything. It's all in that, that situation, all in that sin. But what was the attitude of David's heart? Just total remorse and sorrow. Totally repentant. Pleading with God not to take the Holy Spirit away from him. We read in Psalm 51. It's hard if you know the context, and you read Psalm 51 to read it without feeling emotional about what David was saying. You see his heart poured out there. But of course, Solomon is going to end up in the situation that we're warned about in Hebrews 6.6. 6, that place of losing the gift of repentance. Where you get accustomed to sin. You get used to it. And so it becomes part of your life. In Micah 6.8 again, the question is asked, what does God require? What does the Lord require of thee? And that question hasn't changed. And the answer is given that we should love, that we should live our lives and act in a just and upright way. So no deceit. We should love to show mercy to others, even though very often they don't deserve it. You see, because we didn't deserve it either. And by us showing mercy to others, it's a continual reminder that God has shown mercy to us. And that we stand by grace alone. You know, and therefore we're to walk humbly. See, all those three are so intertwined. And just in case we get into some sort of religious experience going through the motions, we're told that God wants our obedience. It's not an action, it's an attitude of heart. You know, more than just an outward show that looks impressive to man. 
You know, to summarize all of this really in one line, it's Leviticus 11.45 which says, Be holy, for he is holy. So they're the instructions that we've been given for life. God is saying, don't get mixed up with the things of this world. It will not help you. And ultimately, it will pull your heart away from him. This passage in Deuteronomy continues and says, And it shall be that when he, the king, sits upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of that which is before the priest, the Levites. That's an incredible instruction because this is going to take some degree of time. Many hours of sitting and writing. I don't know about you, when I was at school, I, I used to hate writing. I still hate writing. I mean, it's great that we can write, we have the skill and ability, but I get kind of cramped in my hand if I write too much. And I just, you know, keyboards are much easier for me to use to, to write with. But writing by hand. But the king was told to do this. And why? Because it impresses it upon the memory. When you write something out, you have to think about what you're really writing. You have to actually go through the act of doing it. And this was whole, the whole purpose of this. It wasn't just that the king was to read a copy of the law, but it should become part of his thinking. It should permeate his actions and everything because it's become so intertwined in the way he conducts himself because of the, the word just, again, just getting inside. And David says, Psalm 119, Your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. I don't know, we're not given details of whether David actually sat down and wrote this out, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if he did because of these scriptures. David loved the word of God. You've only got to look at Psalm 119 as an example to see how much David relied on God's law, God's statutes. So I'm sure that David would have written himself a copy. And as a result of that, his, God's word was in his heart. Verse 19, And it shall be with him, this copy of the, the law, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. You see, it's a daily exercise, because we get so twisted and pulled by the things of the world, that we have to be continually reminded of the things of God. That's why we have to read our Bibles every day. Because if we don't, the world will come in and take over. And Satan will get us to some place where we feel comfortable. Everything seems okay. And, you know, we're happy with kind of things as they are. Maybe we're not, we'd like it a bit better. But, you know, Satan lulls us into a false sense of security. If he can get us into a place where we're not reading the Bible daily, oh, he loves that. We need to be reading so that we keep growing, so that we don't get pulled away. And we're told again, in verse 20, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. You know, why is it that the king would not become a dictator? Why is it that a pastor should never become dictatorial? Well, it's because if God's word is the basis, we're continually reminded of our own poverty before God, of our own need for God. We're continually reminded that it's not us at all. I couldn't do what I do if it were not for God's grace and God's strength. I don't have the natural abilities. It's God that has done the work in me to allow me to do what I do here as pastor. And Joy will tell you, I'm not a people person, not really. But over the the last five years or so, God has worked in my heart to give me a love and a compassion for people. And it wasn't naturally there. 
And we need to be continually reminded that it's God that is doing the work. This is why the king should write out the law, he should meditate on the law. That his heart be not lifted up above his, brother, above his brethren. And that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. And we've already said how Solomon blew it, because his children don't sit on the throne to endless generations, as was promised to David. There comes a point in his lineage where there's a blood curse placed upon his line, that no children of one of his descendants, and we'll look at it as we journey through kings, none of his children would ever sit on the throne and rule and reign, and we see God fulfill that. So let's look at chapter 11. We'll, we'll see how far we get through this this morning. But King Solomon, this is where we ended last week, if you remember. Uh, what a, a lamentable fact that we have that opening statement, but King Solomon. Actually, in the, the Hebrew, the, the conjunctive is not there. We don't have the word but. It's just simply taken that we are dealing with the fact that this is failure now. And it's not just the king... That would be bad enough. But it's King Solomon. The, the, the man who's had these incredible experiences and visions of God. You know, each of those opening words really are, are, are incredible. It's, but, and then King, well, he should never make these mistakes. And of all the kings that have ever lived, the one that should not have made these mistakes is the wisest man that ever lived. The man who's given us the book of Proverbs. who gave us the book of Ecclesiastes. And we'll journey there in a short while ourselves. But King Solomon, of all people. You know, it reminds me of the, the question that the disciples asked. When Jesus was speaking about salvation. And they kind of questioned and said, who then can be saved? You know, if King Solomon can't get this right, how, how are we to do this? How are we to live a life that is pleasing and a life of obedience? Well, the same answer, really, that Jesus gave to his disciples is the same answer to this question right now. It's, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so straight off, we really need to recognize that if we are to walk with God, it's not going to be because we make a, a New Year's resolution or a, a determined decision to do this. It's because we come to that place of surrender. And we recognize that we are fallen before God. That actually that sinful nature that we tend to think isn't quite so bad, is far worse than we've ever given it credit for. What happened at the fall was so much of a, a, a tear, rending us away from our Creator God, far more than probably we've ever imagined. That's why it took the death of Jesus to bridge that gap, to make a way back to God for us. You realize how great that gulf was when you realize the cost of repairing that damage, of making it possible for our sins to be forgiven. So, but King Solomon loved many strange women. Hmm. Now, in fairness, this is not talking about they were odd. I mean, I'm sure with 700 or so, there probably were some that were odd. But this is just referring to the fact that they were not of Israel. They were not the daughters of the children of Israel. These were from other nations. And it says, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, who we've already been told about, 
Women of the Moabites. Wow. You'd think that a king would have learnt the lesson. You've only got to look back in numbers and see 23,000 men of Israel die. Why? Well, because Balaam, you remember, is this prophet, so-called prophet, who is hired to try and curse Israel. And Balak, the king, brings him in. He tries to get him to curse. And he can't curse Israel. Every message he gets from God is a blessing. And so after all this situation, we find that Balaam ends up giving counsel to Balak so that he can collect his little ransom money, get a bit, a bit of money. And he says, well, what you need to do is to put your girls out there on the front line, all the pretty young Moabite ladies, and that's how you'll bring Israel down. And of course, exactly as, as counseled is done, and as a result, a kind of a, a terrible situation ensues for the nation of Israel. And of course, the Lord judges and deals with it. And you think that Solomon would have learned that lesson, but nevertheless, no, he marries many women of Moabite from the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Zidianites, the Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, you shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely, see God said this already, the reason you don't do it is not because they're ugly and they're not attractive. No, the point is they were probably very beautiful, some of these women. But the reason that you don't go and enter into these relationships is because they're going to turn your heart away uh, from your God, turn your heart away after their gods. And we're told that Solomon clave unto these in love. You see... We may say, well, you can't help falling in love. And some people have that kind of mindset. You know, and love at first sight. Is there really such a thing as love at first sight? Well, I think probably you'll find in truth a lot of it is lust at first sight. Because love is all about giving. And so often people enter into relationships on the basis of what they want for themselves. I'm sure that many of these women that Solomon ended up marrying, there wasn't love there, not real love. There was possibly an attraction. And so often, that's the way relationships start today, isn't it? A physical attraction. But is it really love? You see, first sight, all that is really... In play there are your own desires. That's what's attractive. It's not what you can give to the other person. Interestingly, in Matthew 5, 27 onwards, we read, picking up verse 27, You have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus says, But I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now notice the very next verse. You see, these aren't disconnected things. Jesus didn't suddenly go, right, now what should we talk about? Uh, no, he carries on and says, and, and if thy right eye offend thee. You see, he's likening this looking at someone and lusting for them. Just looking at the surface, looking at what you want for your own pleasure. And if thy right eye offend thee, Pluck it out and cast it from thee. Now, that seems so, so removed from our way of thinking. It's so strange that someone like Jesus 
would say something like this. But of course, he's looking at a much bigger picture. Because he says, For it's profitable for thee, it's better for you, that one of thy members should perish, than that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, we haven't got the right to comment on this, because we don't yet know. We've not yet had the opportunity of knowing how horrible hell is. But Jesus does. And Jesus tells us that it is better to physically pluck out your own eye if it would stop you lusting and having your heart pulled away from God than it is to spend eternity in hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. James, in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. There's a progression there. And the, the real problem is that that little seed, once it's sown, when desire has conceived, it's going to start a process. You can't stop it. It's going to bring birth to sin. But sin, when it's full grown, is going to bring forth death. It's going to bring forth, most importantly, the death of the relationship you have with God. If you allow it to fester, if you allow it to grow, if you allow that seed in the first instance. And this is what God was warning Solomon. Don't even allow the process to start. You know, we're tempted when we're drawn away again by our own desires. This is, again, the problem of the flesh life. Yeah, we get so comfortable, don't we, with the, the world, with the, the circumstances around us. But Jesus here gives us, in his word, a law. It's a spiritual law. It's as certain as the law of gravity. That if you allow desire just to take root, it's going to bring forth ultimately death. We carry on in First Kings 11 verse 3. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and just as God had said, and his wives turned away his heart. See, the desire had been conceived, brought forth sin by marrying them, who he shouldn't have done, he'd been warned against that, and then it brought forth death. It brought forth the death of his own relationship with God. His wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect, with the Lord his God. And notice this statement. As was the heart of David his father. What an incredible statement that is. Because this is David who lied, coveted, murdered, committed adultery. All those things. And yet we're told that the heart of David was perfect with his God. But Solomon's heart was not. Why? Because it's not about actions. It's about attitude. And we've all made Mistakes. We are all sinners, we're all sinful. We're told very clearly in First John, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, and that's the difference, are we willing to go before God and confess that we've allowed other things to become gods in our lives, other things to become more important than him? For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. I'll let you, if you want to, 
go dig into some of the commentaries and look at some of these. For the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to take you there. But some of the things that these gods were into were absolutely hideous. Allowing babies to be placed in the arms of a heated up bronze statue. It's horrible. Let's just look at Ecclesiastes for a moment. Ecclesiastes 2. And we're just going to look at the first 11 verses here. I said in my heart, this is Solomon speaking. And by the way, we go through often, and you may be there right now in your life, but we go through a Solomon phase. And this is what I mean by a Solomon phase. Let me read this. I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. Solomon conducted an experiment. He said, you know what? I'm going to see what makes me happy. I'm going to try a bit of everything. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of mirth, what does it? I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. Yet acquainting my heart with wisdom. And to lay hold of, on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men. Which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works. I built me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, I planted trees, in them all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that brings forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold, and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got I mean, men singers and women singers and the delight of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. You see, someone saying, I didn't withhold anything. I went for all the kind of pleasure that I thought I could see. Gets himself into gardening, into music. Takes all these different kinds of hobbies. All the kind of things that we do. Because he thought in those things he was going to find pleasure. He was going to find happiness. He was going to find what he was looking for. And he says, whatsoever my eyes desired. Note the verse in James we looked at a moment ago. Whatever my eyes desired, I've kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labour. And this was my portion of all my labour. You know, we, we make that kind of claim, don't we? Well, I've worked for it. Why, why can't I enjoy it? Why can't I have this? Why can't I have that? But then he says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and all the labour that I had laboured to do, and behold, it was all vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. What he's saying is, in this realm of things, nothing was found that would satisfy. And that is the gospel. The gospel is that there is nothing in this world that will meet the needs that we have. We are empty. We are looking for something to fill us, to fulfill us. And we won't find it in anything of this world. But when we look to a different realm, under the sun, this world, this realm of things, 
When we look to a different realm, when we look to heaven, when we look to God, when we look to Jesus, well, there is something, there is someone who will satisfy beyond anything we can possibly imagine. He'll bring a peace that passes understanding. And you start to see this contrast between these two ways of living your life. You see, for Solomon, we're grateful, of course, for the record we have in Ecclesiastes. But his problem was that he decided he was going to go and try and satisfy himself from the things of this world. And whatever you do, you'll never go to the excesses that Solomon did. So trust his judgment, because he went there. He took it to the, move the decimal point across a bit. And he came to the conclusion... It's empty. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. And this to me is probably one of the most challenging portions in chapter 11 of Kings. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. So God is saying that what he did was evil. Why? Because of what he'd seen. Because of what he'd known. For a start, and even if he claimed ignorance, there's still no excuse. You see, it's God that will be the one that's there on judgment day. God is the one that is the one who has set the rules. It's his standard. It's not our own standard that we're judged by. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully. Oh, that's the hard part. After the Lord, as did David his father. You see... It's not that Solomon rebelled and went away from God. It's not that Solomon made a decision that we're no longer as a nation going to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's not that he didn't sacrifice to God anymore. It's not that he didn't ever go to the temple. It's not that he gave up believing in the God that had led his forefathers across the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. You know, only a couple of chapters back we see this incredible prayer that Solomon prays. Speaking of God and his greatness and all that he's accomplished. And being reminded of what God had done for the nation, bringing them into the land. Not a word that God had promised had failed. Solomon says that. So he doesn't give up on God. He just adds other stuff to it. He just adds things that give him pleasure. He went not fully after the Lord. And that's the, the real problem here. Because God has bought you and I at a price. That means that we now belong to him. He's got ownership. But he doesn't enforce how we live our lives. As it were, he hands the keys back to us to see what we'll do with them. And the smart thing is to then hand them straight back to him and say, No, Lord. I want you to be in charge. Because the moment we start to make those decisions about how we're going to do, what we're going to do, what our dreams, plans, aspirations are, the moment we start going down that path, we're on very dangerous ground. He went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build high places for Jemosh, the abomination of Moab in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, 
the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrifice unto their gods. You see, they brought their baggage with them. They brought the worship of their gods. And maybe Solomon became, became overwhelmed. There were so many wives now all coming to him saying they wanted to worship their god in their way. And, you know, and the problem is it's not a... We sometimes maybe look at these things as, oh, if we'd have been there, it would have been very different because oh, we'd have spotted it coming. But no, I don't think so. I think Solomon would have been so subtly drawn into these things. You know, oh, Solomon, I know you worship your God, but I'd really like to worship my God. Would you be able to, could we do this? Could we do that? And rather than Solomon staying true and rejecting anything that was false, he allows himself to be drawn into these things. And he ends up building for his foreign wives and you know, we looked earlier in, or back last year when we were going through Hebrews. There are five warnings that are summarized there. The first warning in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, speak of drifting. It's the first warning that we're given. It's a danger that we can drift a little bit away. You know, you've only got to look at somebody who navigates at sea. You know, if they're using a compass, just a degree or two off. At the beginning, doesn't make a big problem. But over the course of the journey, what a difference. Drifting. And of course in Israel we see the stragglers have got picked off. We're reminded, we're challenged in Hebrews, how can you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? You know, really, in the context here, it's allowing the lust of the eyes, of the flesh, the lure of the garlic in Egypt as the children of Israel did, the lure of the Moabites to pull your heart away. Just drifting. And then we see disobedience. Now the warning there is of not entering into that place of rest that God has for us. Meaning that we're going to be continually striving. It's stepping outside that which God has ordained for your good. See, God has laid out in scripture what is for your good. And when we disobey, when we kind of go our own way, this isn't necessarily rebellions, but it's disobeying. It's not fully obeying. Again, stepping outside of what God has ordained. The tribe of Dan did this. The tribe of Dan were given a portion of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. And they said, it's not enough. We want more. And so they take a piece of land right at the top of Israel. And as we'll see, they're the first tribe to go into idolatry. Wanting more than God had given. Wanting to go outside of the boundaries that God had set. Thinking it would be better for them. The third warning in Hebrews is that failure to mature. And the warning again, as you've mentioned already, is losing the gift of repentance. Becoming numb, numb to sin. And really, it's for Solomon, becoming accustomed to this order of things. Accustomed to the way things are. The fourth is willful sin in chapter 10 of Hebrews. You know, God is not mocked. We're told that we will reap what we sow in the book of Galatians. And really, in the context, we end up, if we follow this path through, doing things that we know are wrong. And we get very agitated when somebody points out to us, don't we? And we start making all sorts of excuses, all sorts of reasons why. 
And then finally we get to indifference. Now, in the context of Hebrews, we're warned there that the result of it is that we will forfeit our inheritance in the kingdom. You see, you may not lose your salvation. You'll lose your peace. You'll lose the joy that's there for you. You'll lose so much. But just as with Solomon, he lost his inheritance. His children didn't go on to sit on the throne to endless generations. In fact, even we see his own son, Rehoboam, the kingdom is effectively stripped away from him. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. That's a strange word again. We don't think necessarily of God being angry. But the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord, his, the Lord God of Israel and we're told, which appeared unto him twice. It's not as if he had any real excuse here. It's not as if he could pull the doubt card out. Well, I didn't really know God. I wasn't sure whether this was your voice. No, God had appeared to him twice. There was no doubt. And of course for us, we know in our hearts that God has revealed himself to us. And it's commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go up, not go after other gods. But he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Yeah, part of this really, Luke twelve forty eight, we're told there, for unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. Well, much was given to Solomon. The blessings, the visions, the wealth, the wisdom. Much was required. And he didn't deliver. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding, in in thy days I will not do it, for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit, I will not rend away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to thy son, for David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen." See, again, we're just reminded, even in this, of God's faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. And God, even in the midst of all this, is still faithful to the promise that was made to David. And the Lord stood up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the king's seed in Edom. So we're going to see this is the first of three adversaries now that are raised up against Solomon. Oh, how we bring problems into our life if we don't walk by faith. If we try and live one foot in the world, one foot with God. If we don't give our heart fully to the Lord. For it came to pass that when, this is the history of this individual, for it came to pass that when David was in Edom and Joab the captain of the host was gone up to bury the slain after he had smitten every male in Edom, So this battle had taken place historically previous to this time. And Joab had gone up. The men had been killed. He says, for six months did Joab remain there with Israel until he'd cut off every male in Edom. But then we're told of this individual, Hadad, that Hadad fled. He and certain Edomites of his father's service with him to go into Egypt, Hadad being yet a little child. And they arose out of Midian and came to Paran. And they took men with them out of Paran. And they came to Egypt and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which gave him a house. So this Edomite ends up fleeing away from Joab and David's men at the time, and he ends up making his residence in Egypt. 
And we're told that the Pharaoh of Egypt gave him a house and appointed him victuals and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him to wife the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphanes the queen. And the sister of Taphanes bare him uh, Genubath, his son, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And uh, Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. And when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept, that David had died, slept with his fathers, and that Joab, the captain of the host, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go unto my own country. And then Pharaoh said unto him, But what hast thou lacked with me? That, behold, thou seekest to go to thine own country. And he said, nothing, albeit, let me go anyway. So now Hadad says, you know, Pharaoh, I've got a great time. Thanks for letting me stay. I want to go back home. It's time for me to go. He knows that the people that were after him, they're dead. But now he's got a score to settle. And God stirred him up another adversary. So that was the first one, comes back, causes problems to Solomon. The second one now is this Rezin, the son of uh, Elida. Uh, I think we have something like that. You can mispronounce this yourself at home if you want to. Uh, which fled from his lord uh, Hadadezer, uh, the king of Jobam. So this is the second of these third. Just give a little bit of information. And he gathered men unto him and became captain over a band when David slew them of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and dwelt therein and reigned in Damascus. And he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the mischief that Hadad did. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. And then finally, and this will lead us nicely on now to the rest of the study as we move off into the rest of the kings of the nation. We're told of this man, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. But notice where he's from. An Ephrathite. He's from Israel. He's of the family of Joseph. Of Zerudah, Solomon's servant, no less. Whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow woman. You know, sometimes if the kingdom can't be brought down from outside, Satan will try and do it from within. And this individual lifts up his hand against the king, and this was the cause that he lifted up his hand against the king. king. Solomon built Milo and repaired the breaches of the city of David his father. We looked at that last time, the Solomon's building projects. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man, that he was industrious, made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph. Again, so his family's house, and he becomes chief of that, becomes elevated, promoted by Solomon. And then, we're told, it came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him in the way, and he uh, clad himself with a new garment, and they two were alone in the field. And Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give, uh, give ten tribes to thee. But he shall have one tribe for my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because that they have forsaken me, and have worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and Chemosh, the goddess of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways. Notice what's being said here, though. This isn't just speaking of Solomon. It's spoken of the people. The king had gone astray, and he led the people with him. To do that which is right in mine eyes, and to keep my statutes and my judgments, as did David his father. 
Howbeit I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him prince all the days of his life for um, David, my servant's sake, whom I chose, because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it unto thee, even ten tribes. And unto his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, chosen me to put my name there. And I will take thee, and thou shalt reign according to all that thy soul desires, and shall be king over Israel. And it shall be that if thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee, and will walk in my ways, and do that is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, that I will be with thee, and build thee a sure house, as I built for David. And I will give Israel unto thee. What a great promise to this individual that's kind of come up from nowhere. And I will... For this afflicts the seed of David, but not forever, notice. Solomon sought therefore, so somehow word of this gets back to Solomon. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, and Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt, unto Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And the rest of the acts of Solomon, and all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? Well, we don't have a copy of that book anymore. It's faded. It's gone. And so of all the wonderful things. We've got a few things recorded in Scripture, of course. But one of the great things to remember about Solomon is that he failed. He failed to walk with God with a whole heart. And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. And that's where we'll pick it up next time. But... Once again, the challenge for us, we've got a choice as to how we live our lives. Solomon has given us a great example of what not to do. Trying to go after the things of this world, thinking that they're going to give us some sort of lasting pleasure. They're not. What they will do, they may give us pleasure for a season, certainly. I'm not going to say there's no enjoyment in some of those things. But ultimately... God's analysis is your life will be so much more blessed by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, how poignant it is, how Lord challenging to us. Lord, in these days when everything is before us, Lord, every temptation is available. But the Lord, you call us to surrender the right to ourselves to you and to live a life of obedience. But Lord, you don't live, call us to live a life of boredom, but a life of blessing, a life of, life of joy, a life of peace and blessing. Lord, help us, we pray. For Lord, we know, even in our hearts, Lord, that our so prone to go astray. We know, Lord, what is right. We know the right decision to make. The decision to put our trust wholly in Jesus Christ for our salvation and for our sanctification. Lord, help us, we pray. Work in us by your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.